Welcome to the Atypical Behavior Analyst Podcast, where we take a look at life, the universe, and all things behavior. In this episode, we're going to delve into the world of organizational behavior management, human performance systems, and feedback loops. So, hi, hello. Um, welcome to our yeah first talk as the Atypical Behavior Analyst uh, Podcast, CEU, CE, whatever you want to call it. So um, this particular talk is going to be on the relationship manager role um, within feedback loops. I'm Kelly Tate. I have been a BCBA for the last five years, been in the field for about 12. Um, I split my time between being the director at Collaborative Behavior Services, and then I also do some direct care work. And then I am also a dog mom, no real human children, just the fur child. I'm Shanna Wiggins, I'm also a therapist that works directly with clients with CBS, Collaborative Behavioral Services, and I'm also the relationship manager with CBS and kind of what we're going to be talking about today. So I won't go into that right here. Um, we'll be discussing that later on in the talk. So I think kind of with that said, we can kind of jump into our objectives that we have. All right. So... Um, today, we're going to be discussing like the human performance system and the role that the different feedback loops have within that. We'll also be talking about what we should gather feedback on and describing important considerations when delivering feedback and then discuss some of those benefits of having the relationship manager and the role within those feedback loops. So now that you know what we'll be talking about today, I'm going to go ahead and ask Kelly to jump right in and get us started. Right. So um, we've all been in a variety of jobs and we've, I'm sure, have all been RBTs or if you were around before that uh, came into about your probably direct care staff or you've worked with them but you have had a job of something where you've had a role, you've had designated tasks you need to get done. And because we're good humans, and I think that as behavior analysts, the majority of us try to aspire to do better. And so we go into our role and <clears throat> we go to do our job, but you know, something happens, you know, maybe the internet is a little bit wonky that day, especially in the day of telehealth, or you go to get the kid's binder and it's not there. And you have no idea what programs you're supposed to be running. You don't have a data sheet. Now you're flustered. The kid is flustered. Or we'll take it one step up and say, maybe you're a supervisor and you need to go and do an observation with an RBT or you're working with the BCABA or someone who's wanting to become a BCBA and you can't get a hold of them. You may not know the location. Again, now with the joys of telehealth, we may have some internet issues. The family may not be able to support that many things. And all of these are variables that can potentially um, impact your performer and their performance. And so um, instead of the typical focus of looking at the child and the things that we do with that, with the human performance system, we actually look at the human themselves. We look at the person who is implementing these things and who um, is going and doing this job. And so Rimmler and Breach make this really great comment, and I've heard it in a few other fields as well, of if you pit a good performer against a bad system, that system's going to win almost any time. You know, if you don't have your data sheet, you don't know the programs, those are just variables that are hindering your performance. Whereas if everything is where it's supposed to be, you're able to get a hold of your um, supervisor or you're able to get in touch with somebody, everything's working and the system flows nicely, then everything kind of has this nice, this nice flow and everything works optimally. 
but unfortunately the world's not optimal. So here we are. Um, so jumping into it, we're gonna focus really on the human performance system. So there is the total performance system, but we're gonna really just hone it in on the individual themselves. So there's this concept developed with Remler and Breathauer in the 60s. Um, there were several behavior analysts that wanted to move that three-term contingency away from just child picks up toy or child asks for toy, child gets toy, child touches the cookie picture, child gets a cookie. And we wanted to move away from that because we could see behavior analysis is everywhere. Um, you know, in the, in the little pre-discussion, you know, between the different methodologies. It's a lot of different frostings. And so we just wanted to look at the frosting in a different way. And so they started to look at it from this performance system where all of these other variables can come into play. And how do those impact the performer? How can we make that better? What can we fix? What can we tweak? Because our learner is never wrong. We're just a product of the environment. So the human performance system really looks at those variables that influence the person. Um, and it's similar to that regular or that ABC that we're familiar with. In this case, the input looks more like the training and policies, your learning history, um, your output is the programs that you're implementing, any training that you're doing, and then consequences, we see those changes. Um, so what we're going to do in the next slide is go through a little bit more specifically on each of these potential areas that are variables that can affect your behavior. So we start with our performer. Um, and with the performer comes their own learning histories. We all didn't go to the same university. We didn't all have the same um, verbal communities to interact with and still don't. And so we each have our own learning histories. And so those are some things that should be taken into account when you're working with these performers, because I can't just assume that everybody is going to know the constructional approach because that's very much a North Texas Joe Lang. There's a very small group in the field that really dig that. So we need to make sure that we're kind of looking at those things and how that can impact our learner. And so that's our, our person. On the antecedent side of things, wrong way, um, we have that task support. So I mentioned you know, not being able to find a binder for a kid so you don't know their programs or maybe you're stepping in or you're observing an adult client and you're not real familiar with you know, any kind of assessments that you can do with this individual. Um, so we need to make sure that those things are also being looked at and taken into account. You know, what kind of um, interference may be happening with the, you know, the RBT? Are they struggling to get to work? Are they struggling on their transitions um, between clients if they're in like a clinic setting? And then also you can look at, you know, resources and budgets on the output side of things. So what do we do when we have all of this knowledge? Um, well, in theory, we know what we're supposed to do. We usually have expectations, we have guidelines. Um, the individuals all have their own programs and you know procedures that you go through and protocols. And so we need to make sure obviously that those things are there and um, readily available for the performer because otherwise, again, that part of the system, if it breaks down, is going to affect the performer as they try to go forth and do their work. And that leads us into um, the consequences. And this can be, we can look at it from a lot of different ways. And this kind of goes into the meat of our topic of, it's not just the consequences of how is the individual doing? Are they making progress in their goals? Um, am I ticking off the little boxes? Am I adding more skills and I'm seeing a decrease in challenging behavior? Are those replacement behaviors occurring more often in, in replace of the you know, self-injury or physical aggression? Is communication emerging? We tend to look at those things. 
Um, but we can also look at what's the relationship like? Um, is the kid excited when the therapist shows up? Those are also potential consequences. Um, is the parent happy? Or if, you know, for Shanna and I, we tend to work a lot more with adults in group home settings, in day habs. Um, I've worked in the state schools here as well, which are essentially really, really big group homes on large props, large areas of property. Um, so there's anywhere between two or three upwards. I think the largest one here is close to a thousand individuals um, with varying disabilities. Um, Texas is very interesting. We've got several state schools, um, but there are consequences that emerge in there. You know, when I show up, are they going, oh, geez, it's behavior analyst again. God, okay, make sure you're doing your work, guys. Or is it they're excited to see me and, you know, oh, hey, can we have a talk? Let's, let's go through these things. So those are some consequences that we um, at Collaborative really started to kind of look at and go, you know, there's value in this. Um, we can see how these things are impacting our BCBAs that are working and it's impacting their work output as well. You know, maybe they're not performing as well because they're coming across these really critical things or these consequences that aren't reinforcing. So that gets us into how did we learn this? The joys of feedback. Um, and feedback can come in a variety of forms and Shanna's gonna go more in depth on that, but we've got what I like to call, you know, the intentional feedback and then kind of the unintentional. And we started to get a lot of the unintentional. We're like, ooh, maybe we should be a little bit more purposeful as we seek this out because a lot of us have a history of someone comes in and says, all right, I've got my clipboard. And because you got the clipboard, have my clipboard, do the thing. And then you go and do your thing and they check off boxes and afterwards they go, Excellent. Here's your feedback. And you may have a conversation. Um, and sometimes you're like, cool. I, I got a three out of four. I think that's good. Like, well, you know, what's the purpose of it? It seems to be a little bit lacking sometimes. Or in other cases, it's kind of, you know, I like to call it water cooler talk, where maybe you're just having a casual conversation and someone mentions, oh, yeah, I was working with a parent the other day, you know, making sure that you're staying within your, your HIPAA compliance, your privacy. Um, you know, and, and it just seemed like things were off and I'm not really sure how to approach that. So we can get feedback from a variety of ways. And sometimes it's intentional and sometimes it's purposeful. So here's where I would love to have other people's opinion. It was originally going to be a poll and now it is not, it is going to be a discussion. Um, so I would like to know what kind of experience do you guys have with feedback? What was the information that you were being given or that you have given in the past? Um, you know, what did it tend to focus on? Cause I feel like everybody has their thing. Um, and so someone may hone in really tightly on like, oh, well, you know, your, your antecedents need to be super clear. And you may have another supervisor who's like, you know, you got it at that reinforcer at three seconds. It has to be perfect. So I'm just kind of curious what everyone else's experiences have been with feedback. I just think there's probably not enough of it. Okay. There we go. You honest? You know, there's not enough of it um, in services. It's not very clear. And like you said, very little pinpointing goes on typically in services. That's what we see. Um, so, yeah, I just think generally in kind of in adult residential services, that there isn't a lot, there isn't much of a feedback loop at all very often, I think. And it's not linked to the existing systems they have. Supervision doesn't seem to focus on practice. It focuses on kind of management issues in, in some respects rather than the actual practice of kind of delivering care and support to people. So, so yeah, I think we're, we're, we're a bit lacking in general in kind of feedback loops in, in, a, in a lot of services. Mm 
And I appreciate you bringing up that loop portion because that is the crucial thing is once we get feedback, what do we do with it? Um, it needs to have a function. And that's where that loop portion comes in is being purposeful with it. Um, and, and we, in regards to the timing of things, I feel, you know, we get caught up doing all the other paperwork. So it's like, oh shoot, I need to go do that quarterly review. Let me run, go grab my pen and paper and hey, you got 15 minutes. Okay. And it's not, it's a thing that I have to do. It's not something that I'm intentionally looking at, or I've set goals with the individual. Like, what do you want to work on? What would you like feedback on? Um, I asked one of our new hires, uh, she'd been on several Zooms with me dealing with like parent meetings and staff trainings. Um, and I asked her, I said, I need feedback on my verbal behavior because I haven't taught um, in front of a bunch of people in a very long time. And so now that we're doing Zooms, that goes much back to my teaching roots. And I have a lot of bad habits from that. And the poor thing was slightly terrified because she'd just been hired and I'm asking her to be honest with me. And she's like, oh, okay. And so she was very delicate, but it's still, you know, this is something that we do. These are consequences. And if we are so particular with the individuals that we serve, why are we not as particular with ourselves? That was a fun sound. I feel very magical with that. It's extremely reinforcing. Um, that was up there with a click. So other thoughts on feedback. I think the idea that you raised there about that sort of like unintended feedback, I think is really interesting because I definitely am aware of services where the sort of supervisor has asked the behavior person, can you just go in and let me know what's going on? Because I think something not great is going on there. So actually, the, the, as soon as the behavior specialist goes in, the staff are going, oh. <gasps> what's going to happen because they've never have someone come in and just go you're doing a fabulous job and this is exactly what makes what you're doing fabulous it's just automatically assume like you're coming in to catch us out um and that might not be your intention but that's definitely uh, what's happening oh we are mostly most feedback i feel is a conditioned punisher at this point um i've and so i will tell leah a lot of times like if she says like hey can we talk i'm like please clarify because it makes my heart stop. And I think a lot of us have that feeling. If you get a text from an employee or a funding source or someone that is within your system, it's just like, can we talk? Oh man, no, can we never talk? I'm dead. I am gone. I'm on vacation forever because it's just, it's, it's been a, a like I said, it's never, not that it's never, a lot of our feedback is not intentional. And so it's a thing that we do because we should do it. It's part of what the company says we should do if you're following those kind of policies. Um, but really we shouldn't be doing that. We really should be conditioning ourselves to be excellent agents of reinforcement of feedback is a good thing. Um, we have spent the last couple of months um, with the way that our funding system works is we go through audits and um, the state comes in and they review everything, nursing, um, any kind of physical therapy, occupational behavior services, dietitians, because these are individuals that are using state funds to get their needs met. Um, but it can also be extremely stressful. And so I've had to do a lot of reconditioning when I see an email that says, see this, or can you change? Because now it's, I'm, I, I can't take it personally because I'm trying to, again, recondition it to be reinforcing because if I can deal with it now and I can make these changes now, I don't have to deal with them later on. I've learned something. So it makes life better in the long run. Um, but like Patty said, I think it's really nice that we, we have these loops that come in, but we need to actually finish the loop. And so that these are intentional, which was going to be my 
next slide with how I kind of looked at things within feedback. Um, I guess before I go into this, anybody else have further commentary on their experiences with either giving or receiving? Um, I just like to add that I, um, when I started out in the field, I worked in an ABA school where I received lots of training, amazing feedback. I felt I became a very competent and confident um, ABA tutor working with autistic children. And then when I moved into kind of working for myself, mostly most of my um, clients are funding the program from their own pocket. They're not funded by a local authority. They're not, you know, um, they're just doing it on the side, topping up their child like after school program or if it's preschool. So a lot of them don't want to invest in training the tutors. They say you've got three hours once a month, which is what we can afford you to come in. Um, and in those three hours, there's only so much you can do. You can set targets. You can maybe observe tutors working with children for a proportion of that workshop, those three hours. So it's really, I'm finding it really difficult to um, convey the importance of I need to come in an extra you know, visit a month. Let's rotate between the tutors and I can observe them, have an overlap, provide training, provide feedback. That's what I struggle with. Yeah, finding time and finding um, what's acceptable because you hit the nail on the head with they can only afford so much. Um, mm -hmm. and, and that's not it. What is it is you go in, you get training, you do things, you get feedback on what you did right. You do those things again, you get feedback on what needs to be corrected. You change that. And seeing the value of changing the performer, change the individual that they're teaching. That's, I think a lot of times that people don't see it's like, well, okay, fine. So you're giving feedback to your RBT, but like, aren't they trained in this already? It's kind of the, the thought process that tends to happen. It's like, they are, but they can do better. And as they get better, they're going to do better for your kid and they're going to do better for this whole situation. So this is actually really a vital thing, but because not just us, but I mean, most people don't like feedback. No one likes being told what they did incorrectly. Um, we all take, we take it personally. Um, and most of the time, that's all we hear. We don't hear, Hey, that was really good. Um, I have one time that sticks out in my head working at, a big clinic with a bunch of littles and it was like our after school program. And so we're all in the big room and there's probably like five or six kids and therapists. And one of our BCBAs came in and of course all of us are like, mm, are we okay? But we all did like the quick look around, like, okay, everybody's here. No one's bleeding. So that's good. No one's crying. And then we kept doing our stuff and she goes, okay, everybody stop. And looked around. She goes, this is perfect. It's beautiful. And I mean, this stuck out because it's been, well over 10 years since this occurred. So that kind of feedback is so impactful, but it doesn't happen very often. And so this needs to be a conversation that we have a lot more often. Um, and I, I love the fact that you said you felt confident and competent because those are two things that once you get into the real world and if no one is giving you feedback other than what you're doing with this individual and you're hoping that they make progress, but a lot of times working in adult residential settings, you don't see these big jumps like you do with kids. You just kind of see maintenance. Like they didn't break a plate today. Yay. Or we bought real plates today. Yay. As opposed to, oh, well, we were able to say 15 words. 
And so when you get out in the field and you're not getting this kind of feedback, you do lose that confidence. And then you do start to kind of question your competencies of like, do I really know what I'm doing? So I think those are excellent, excellent points. Um, any other thoughts? There's one thing that, that kind of occurred to me as well around kind of timing of feedback. Um, one, of, um, one of the people I work with, um, they, they say they're never going to submit a journal article on a Friday because sometimes editors will review them on a Friday evening, maybe over a glass of wine and give feedback on that Friday night and be like, oh my God, I never want to hear that feedback that someone's after giving on that Friday night because <laughs> they'll wake up on a Saturday and just have a rubbish weekend. So they're kind of saying like, I I'll send it on a Monday or Tuesday, I'll get them in a better mood and I'll probably get some nicer feedback if it's a desk rejection. Um, <laughs> and and um, it's kind of similar if you think about it then kind of like in other areas of like kind of you don't want kind of feedback at a time you're already feeling a bit meh or kind of you're not in the right frame of mind to receive that feedback. Um, so there's a there's an element of kind of priming it as well and thinking about kind of what is the right time to give that feedback and what does that look like? Okay, but yeah, these are, I mean, there's so much to explore with feedback. The more that we looked into in this, the more I got really, really excited and I'm like, oh man, there's lots of areas to play it. So um, we'll stick with just, you know, the feedback for today but you guys have brought up a lot of areas that I think would be really fun to explore, like the timing and what kind, and then also looking at, you know, our own self-care of when we kind of deliver these things. That's a, a big push as well. So with feedback, as I was going through and we were, we've been talking, um, I kind of saw how we give feedback um, either to RBTs or um, other BCBAs, you know, peer review kind of things. We tend to do it in like two formats. One is that observation where I'm going and I'm actually seeing what's happening. I'm watching them interact with the child, watching them interact with the parent. Um, I may be observing staff training. And so I'm looking for, you know, the things that we have listed environmental control, ratio of work to play. Um, are they following their own treatment correctly and accurately? Are they delivering reinforcers um, in a timely manner? Um, are, do they have a good ratio? And so these are all things that we're looking at and things that they're doing um, and that we tend to tick off and we take our own data on as well. And then there's kind of the paperwork side of things where I part of my role is I review behavior support plans um, and protocols before they get submitted to state to make sure that it ticks off all the boxes. Do we have the um, function identified or at least have a good hypothesis of what it is? With that, do we have replacement behaviors for those you know, challenging behaviors that we may need to um, either replace or provide an alternative for? Do we have clear and concise instructions? Um, some staff require a little bit more teaching and a little bit more step-by-step. -step. And then you have other individuals who they really do well with, you know, just give me a basic um, guideline, you know, tell me that I need to, you know, click the clicker every time he says happy, you know, something like that, something simple they can follow. Um, you know, are the SDs clear? All of these things are written out so that if any other behavior analyst picks it up, they can go, oh yeah, this makes sense and understand what those programs are. But as we were going through all of this, there was this really, really big trend. Um, it's all technical. It is all stuff that we do. And I can go in there, and I think, Paul, you said it really well with, I could go in with any attitude and do these things and with any kind of mood um, and engage in, oh, sorry, I have my own glasses. I get really excited. Um, you know, I can engage in these skills regardless of what my demeanor is. Um, but what we have started to find is that that may not, it's not the best because it impacts treatment. 
And it really does affect the way that the learner is learning. And then it also impacts the way that the learner responds to the therapist and then their network, the client's network also responds to the therapist possibly similarly because of these kind of interactions. So with that being said, I will let Shanna take over. Okay. Now, so Kelly just mentioned, you know, like how the common trend is with technical skills. Um, and so that may kind of leave us asking, you know, or maybe even just saying, of course, you know, what else is there, you know, to get feedback on. And so we want to get at that answer. But before we do that, let's first talk about like why the emphasis is on technical skills. And so let's look at a couple different things. And, and I've kind of termed it, um, it's how we've been raised up. You know, if you look at where we where we started um, and, and, and where all we've gone to get where we are right now, you know, we look at the verified course sequence and what we're taught in that. And if you think of the different things within those um, courses, they're mainly all having to do with technical skills. You know, it's teaching us how to design and apply behavior analytic procedures. Um, they talk about like, or they, they teach us about, or test us on the principles. We're provided experience, um, like experience with implementation of procedures, taught how to conduct research, you know, all of that. Again, those are all things that the focus is on technical skills. And then even within like the BACB task list, if you look to that, you know, it's broken down into three sections, the behavior analytic skills the client-centered responsibilities and the foundational knowledge. And if you look within, you know, what is within each of those sections, again, it goes back to our technical skills. Uh, and then within job training, I mean, think about, you know, whether you were in the field as, you know, a, there's so many different names for it, you know, whether you were a junior coach or as you became a RBT, um, those different things, working with the individuals using um, ABA. You know what, if you think about the things that you that were taught to you in those initial trainings you received, um, the different, I know in one of the places I work, they call them checklists. I was checklisted on all these different skills. Almost every single one of them was technical skills. So, you know, we have taken in all of this about technical skills. So that's going to be what our output is. That's what we're going to be seeking feedback on. Um, it, it's just kind of because we kind of see it as that's just how it is. That's what we're supposed to be doing. And, and I would say, you know, most companies have systems in place to do this. And, um, and you know, and I, and I think it's great. I think that, there, that it's important to have that. I, I would say this isn't a talk on, you know, let's, let's put the technical skills aside and let's, let's look at something else. It's we need these technical skills. We need to be looking at them. We need to be um, gathering information on it, feed, getting feedback on them and, and delivering that feedback. We do need to do that. But I would just say is that all that we need to be doing. Um, and so one thing I would ask is if it's not, you know, what is it? Um, and, and I would say that that answer, you know, what we've come to is the non-technical skills. And so what I want to do is um, I want to begin by just kind of talking about what we mean by non-technical skills. Um, I, you know, possibly for some of y'all, this is something that, that, that you incorporate in, in the work that you do. But maybe for some of us, this, this term non-technical is, is kind of new to us. 
So some of the examples of what I mean, or what we mean by that is um, demonstrating empathy and compassion. And um, I would say that maybe considering this as a behavior analyst can seem very odd. Um, I know at least kind of in the area that I've been brought up in as a behavior analyst or you know, prior to being certified, um, we wouldn't use these words of empathy and compassion. Uh, it, it would be kind of, I don't know, I almost frowned upon, I think, for us to, to be talking about this as behavior analysts. You know, we, we need some very operationally defined things that are, that are observable, you know, very clearly observable, all those kind of things. But, uh, but, I, but, we're going to, but today we're gonna to talk about empathy and compassion. Uh, one thing I wanna say um, with empathy, I wanna to try to explain what I mean by that. There's a good article, we'll talk about the article just a, briefly a little bit more in a minute, but just the article is, does a very good job of explaining empathy and compassion and maybe gets it a little bit closer to where we can define it and possibly even observe it in, in our therapist and in the staff and employees that, that are within the company. But with um, empathy, it's considered walking in another's shoes. And it's also involving perspective taking. And probably most of us have helped our clients with perspective taking skills and trying to gain those kind of things. But how many of us as behavior analysts have considered perspective taking ourselves? You know, how much have we perspective, you know, taken the perspective of our clients, of the caregivers, of the staff that we're working with? Um, and, and I know um, some of us probably are a little bit better than that, the, with that than others. Um, and then once we do that, we've taken the perspective of somebody else, then we can look at compassion. And, and what is that? That is taking empathy one step further. So now that I've taken that perspective and I see the way they describe it in the article is like alleviating someone's suffering. And you know, if you think of the client, they're, they're struggling with, with certain things that, you know, come along with that diagnosis. The struggles that the parent and caregivers have, um, knowing their child has this disability, um, the struggles that they face day to day in their home because of the disability, those kind of things. So what, what I, it's, compassion is looking at those types of things and saying, where does that fit in what I do? What can I do? What, how can I act in a way that I'm being compassionate? Um, other examples that we have here is um, having open communication and being collaborative. So, um, you know, are we, are we doing all the talking whenever we go in and talk with our clients and caregivers or are we listening also? You know, are we hearing what other, what they have to say? Are we being collaborative? Are we saying, or are we listening, but then being like, okay, now back to what I have to say, or now back to my agenda? Are we considering other viewpoints? Um, also engaging in positive social interactions. You know, a lot of times we measure these things um, with perhaps the children we're working with or, or, or adults, whoever, you know, we're looking at their smiles and eye contact. Are we considering how, how we're doing with that? You know, whenever we're when we're listening to uh, the caregivers speak, you know, are, are we smiling? Are we providing eye contact? Those kind of things. Uh, and then also being relational. Whenever we go in, you know, with, with our clients, 
are we really committed to, to doing this? Is, is this just a job? Is it just reaching the, the goal of, yes, I've changed this child's behavior um, because that may, you know, that, that makes me look like a behavior, a better behavior analyst, or are we doing it because we truly want to see change in our clients' lives and in the, in the client's family's life, you know, or, and so that's where that commitment comes in. And then also just exhibiting warmth and acceptance. You know, I think of, you know, are we personable? Um, I think with warmth, it also touched, you know, whenever I read on that, you know, it's talking about like our smiling and things like that whenever we're interacting with the, with the people on, with the client and their, and their team. And then also displaying a positive interpersonal style. Um, kind of, we kind of touched, uh, touched on this a little bit whenever um, in one of the points earlier, but are we actively listening? You know, sometimes I think, I know I've struggled where, you know, in, in, in an instance where it's like, okay, uh, my clients are, are receiving the treatment through state funding and they've said, okay, you have three to six hours to do your assessment. And you're like, oh, you know, so you're like, you want to jump in and you want to just bam, bam, bam questions. Let me ask all these questions. I got the information I need. Let me go back and create that behavior plan. But I think that there's so much value in actively listening to our clients and caregivers, to the staff who are working with them, who have been working with them. I think that sometimes when we listen to them and we're like, here they are venting, here they are, you know, whining again. I would say, listen to what they're, what they're venting about, listening to what they're whining about, because there's value in what they're saying. I think that if we take that information into what we're doing, into the plan we're creating, into the goals we're setting for them, we're going to come, we're probably going to develop a much better goal um, that that's good for the client and, and that also the caregiver really finds value in. And so that active listening requires patience. Um, and then I would also say being flexible. You know, sometimes we want to come in with our perfect plan, you know, you know, I, I hear you're saying all this stuff. I know, I know here, but here's the plan I'm coming with. If we're, if we're not taking in what they say, you know, by taking in what they say, we're making things a lot messier. We're making things a lot more challenging. You know, it's, it's going to take a lot more time and effort on my part to try to create a plan because now I've got to take all this stuff into consideration, but I would say be flexible and, and try to consider all that input, all that feedback, all that you're hearing, take all of that into consideration when you're developing the plan and be flexible with what maybe you come in thinking needs to be done. Um, and, and again, you're probably going to come out with a much better plan if we are, the more flexible we are with that. So now these are just a few, this is an all encompassing list of some of these non-technical skills. Um, but so what I would want to say is, you know, we have these non-technical skills, but now I think we need to look at why do we need non-technical skills? And one thing that I want us to do is to look to the research of, of what research says about why we would need these things. Sorry, Shannon, so, can I interrupt real quick to give everyone their, their little first keyword? Oh, yes, absolutely. Right, okay, so the first keyword is compassion. <laughs> compassion, all right, back to you. Thank you so much for using that. Yes. Okay. All right. So um, we're going to look at research. Um, as I said on the previous slide, I'm going to say it again here. This is not all encompassing of the research that's out there on non-technical skills. 
but we're just going to highlight a few for today. So um, looking at the Taylor article, kind of a key point from that is when we combine the non-technical skills with the technical skills, it strengthens commitment to treatment. So again, you know, we can come in with this attitude of I'm a great behavior analyst. I can change behavior. Why do I need these non-technical skills? You know, but what we're seeing is if we want people to, if we want the clients, the caregivers, the staff members, if we want them to commit to that treatment plan, we're going to better be able to do that if we're utilizing non-treatment, sorry, non-technical skills. Um, and then um, also, I think one of the questions on feedback was, um, or maybe a statement was, you know, you only have two or three hours a week, you know, to, to give or to, to provide services. So you're probably having to rely upon the parent of that client, the staff, wherever that child is going during the day. You're having to rely upon those things. So this is where those non-technical skills really come in to be able to, um, sorry, to be where they come in to be able to um, get that, the treatment team on board and to really utilize those skill or to, to be able to gain their, their trust, their commitment to it and be willing to implement your great plan that you have. Um, also with Chadwell, um, it talks about some parents will tolerate lower treatment effectiveness in favor of a therapist that effectively utilizes non-technical skills. And to me, that, that was really kind of just, um, part of me said, well, of course, you know, we're, we're humans. Our parents are humans. They're, they're, and, and, and we as behavioral analysts are humans too, but sometimes we as behavior analysts can get so focused on certain things and lose sight of um, how things happen in real life that, you know, parents just want that compassion and consideration, those kind of things. So I think, you know, we really need to, to, to take that into consideration, again, that parents are willing to compromise the treatment that they're receiving in order to get a therapist or to get individuals in their home working on this treatment plan that are utilizing better non-treatment skills, non-technical skills. I keep calling it non-treatment for some reason, non-technical skills. Um, and then if we move on to Gold Diamond, the treatment plan should include um, programming contingency um, changes that clients consider desirable. You know, are we considering what the clients want? What do they consider desirable? Or are we coming in and saying, you know, well, I think you need this, you know, I think it's, it's taking that time. That's where that active listening comes in and, and taking those things into consideration. Um, and then with Hayes, we need to um, not forget our ultimate purpose, um, understanding of complex human behavior. You know, one of the things he's talking about with this complex human behavior is emotions. So again, you know, when we listen, you know, we listen to that, what we would say, that parent that's whining or that, you know, complaining or, you know, whatever. There's, there's value in what they're saying. And we need to look at that and we need to ask, ask ourselves, why are they doing this? Uh, and consider those kind of things. So um, we, we've kind of touched on why we feel these skills are important. Um, but I, so I think now that we hopefully see an importance in in implementing these kind of skills in what we're doing day to day, I think we need to kind of look at, um, sorry, oh, sorry. Um, something threw me off of the side. So I think now we need to consider, um, take a few things into consideration when we're seeking this feedback. Um, and one of the things is determining the potential feedback loops within your company. So um, every company is gonna look a little bit different, um, but I just wanted to throw out a few examples here 
just so things to kind of get your um, get your minds thinking on this is um, the different feedback loops could consist of peer to peer to peer. So possibly, you know, there's something that's set up in the organization to where you have the therapist, the behavior analyst, RBTs, whoever, set up to where they are um, gathering feedback or and, and, and providing feedback to each other. It could also be supervisor to supervisee. So probably as it's already happening, the supervisor is, is you know, obtaining um or, or kind of measuring the, the technical skills performance of their supervisee. So they can just incorporate the non-technical skills as well there. And then also considering between departments, you know, sometimes I think of um, previous employment where uh, my department providing the direct therapy had to interact with the billing and insurance department. And, you know, it's important to make sure that we're considering those interactions there because we, we need to maintain a good relationship. We need to make sure there's an open line of communication because without those insurance approvals, we're not able to serve our clients. You know, and we need to make sure we're hearing, you know, what the, what the departments are saying. You know, also thinking of one thing that I thought of um, more recently with this is, is also considering, you know, the, the person, like if you're in a clinic setting, who is that person that you first see when you walk in? You know, and, and we really need to consider the non-technical skills um, in, the, in that area as well. Also consumer to organization. How do the parents, you know, are we, are we asking them how they feel about the, the therapist's performance or their interactions with us? And then also considering employees within the company. How do they feel about the company that they're working for? Very important, I think, to consider. Um, so these, again, these are just a few. As you think through the organizations that you're a part of, you may be able to think of more, uh, but this is just kind of ideas to, to get you started. And we also wanted to determine how we will seek that feedback within each of these loops. Um, and I've mentioned a few, you know, peer-to-peer, -peer, maybe you set up something to where you're, you're requiring or asking of the RBTs to be, you know, providing feedback to each other. And then, you know, whenever you're doing that supervisor to supervisee, you're just going to start incorporating some of those non-technical skills within that or in, in gathering that, that feedback on that. And, and that's, and, and I think these are some ways that we can do that. The actual individuals themselves, you know, working with each other and, and, and doing that. But I also would say that we should consider having an independent feedback seeker and, you can say, well, you know, well, what do you mean by having that independent seek, independent feedback seeker? Um, and so let me go ahead and explain what I mean by an independent seeker, independent feedback seeker. Uh, and I'm going to explain it from the role that I have with CBS as a relationship manager. And so that independent uh, feedback seeker, or in our case, the relationship manager, what, what my focus is on is really the relationships. What are the relationships like between our therapist and the people within the organization? And what are their relationships like with the people outside of organization, with the clients they serve, with the staff and families they interact with, the providers, uh, those, those different kind of things. So, you know, we have Kelly who has been looking at, you know, what are, what are their technical skills look like? She's, you know, she mentioned earlier, she reviews those behavior support plans. 
She reviews our session notes, those kind of things. We, we really need to make sure, you know, and, and as we talked about, those things are very important. We need to keep those. Those are important to have, but we also need to look at those relationships. As research said, these things are important to consider. And so um, what, what we do, what I do as that relationship manager is kind of inspecting what we expect. So maybe, you know, we can, we can look at all of this and say, you know, I've, I just expect people within the company to, to be kind and nice and courteous and to listen and all that, but we don't have anything formal in place. And so this is this opportunity to have something more like that. And so it's in this, in my role, it's where I, um, I will go to the um, clients it, and depending on the skill level of the client and their ability to share information, I'll, I'll reach out to them. So that's that client and their support network. I reach out to their parents, caregivers, if they're in a group home, the staff within the group home, you know, different people that our therapists are interacting with. We want to make sure I reach out to them and, and ask them, how are the services going? Um, one, through a few discussions Kelly and I had, you know, we've, we've talked about, you know, um, sometimes you can, you can incorporate that tech, kind of some of those questions that may seem a little bit more about technical skills, but it does tell you about the communication. You know, Kelly and I talked about, you know, asking them, hey, even though I can go and look at the therapist behavior plan, I can go and ask the parent, what, what goals are y'all working on? And when, whenever I do that, then I can come back and compare it to the behavior plan. I can tell how is the communication going because the therapist has these listed in the behavior support plan or is telling me they're, or is telling Kelly they're working on these, but the parent is telling me a little bit different thing. And so that lets me know there's, there could, there's potentially some communication breakdown. And so that's, that's something that that's valuable with this role. Um, but, and then two, you know, I can go and I can seek out feedback from our therapist of how do you feel, and in our case, how do you feel as a contractor to CBS? Um, in maybe other cases, how do you feel as, as an employee with this company that you're with? And, and finding out what are the pros and cons to, to you working for this company? And it can give us a lot of information that can be valuable that, that can help us to, to see, you know, what do, okay, I'm, I'm taking this information, what do I need to do with it? What, how do I need to move forward with that? And so as we're doing all this, we do need to consider developing a data collection and documentation system. Um, the data collection system um, can probably seem a little challenging because again, some of these things aren't as clearly measurable as we're used to with the technical skills. But I think as we, as you review this literature, as you get out and, and, and make these attempts at obtaining this feedback, it becomes a little more clear. And, and we have a documentation system to where um, the, the feedback that I receive is documented, the um, suggestions or goals that, that I come up with based on that feedback and that the therapist comes back with, that's all documented. We obtain signatures on, on the uh, forms that we do. The feedback is covered um, at this point through Zoom, but it's, it's covered with those therapists. And, but then there's the follow-up, the documentation, that way they have a record of it, we have a record of it, it's in writing. Um, and, and then also with that, kind of like I mentioned with, with this bottom bullet point of setting goals and managing follow-ups, you know, I'm taking in, okay, this is what they said. Based on that, these are some things that the therapist could potentially do to improve that situation. 
But then I don't want to just stop there. I also want to ask that therapist, based on the feedback that you were just given, what do you think that you could do moving forward to help to make things better? And, and having um, us both provide that information, have it documented. And then at that point is making sure we're following up. Uh, following up with the therapist, you know, and, and saying, how is it going with, you know, after you've received this feedback and you're trying to make these changes, how is that going for you? And then also making sure you're following up with who you receive the feedback from, because it's one thing for the therapist to be trying their darndest to, to try to make those changes, but is the, is the parent, the caregiver, the staff, are they seeing these changes? Are they, are they experiencing those changes that, that are needed? Um, and, and so I think as far as what I've realized through this is that sometimes that follow-up is maybe a one-time thing a week or two after the fact, because it's something what we would consider minor. Um, but there's other situations that can be maybe a little more um, involved uh, that where there's maybe some more issues than, than realized. And those require more frequent follow-ups and maybe um, more follow-ups than, than the minor feedback would and, and more over time. So I think it's all kind of situational based on that. Um, one thing I would say maybe would make other people cringe. You know, I felt like I just kind of dove into this and as I gathered information, it gave me information on how to develop these systems, which I found to be helpful. So one thing I would say is, you know, don't don't let all of this, you know, feel too overwhelming that it's just like pushed aside, but but consider, you know, if you feel this way, I feel this is important. I feel like non-technical skills are important. I feel like they need to be incorporated. You know, just don't hesitate, jump in. It doesn't have to be perfect from the beginning. Just you know, start gathering that information and that information you're gathering is going to help you make those decisions on data collection, documentation systems, all those kind of things. So with all of that said, um, we've covered a whole lot of information today. So I think at this point, I just wanna make sure, or we wanna make sure that we kind of summarize that all, all of that for you. So I'm gonna let um, Kelly jump back in here for that. All right, so well, real quick, second, second keyword, uh, relationship. What is your second keyword? Relationship. Right, over to you. All right, so real quick, because I know we've only got a couple of minutes left. Um, your takeaways. Human performance occurs within a system. It does not occur within a vacuum. We have not, while we may act like we're living in a DTT world in a nice little clinic box where every variable is controlled for, we do not. We work within systems that... Um, have other humans working in them and they have their own, you know, breakdowns and things like that. So things to remember is that we don't perform just within a vacuum. There are multiple variables that can potentially affect your performer's performance and their behavior. So things to consider. Um, and th that's where the human performance system can really come in to help diagnose, predict, make changes with the behavior of your employee, your performer, your worker. Um, one of the ways that you can look into those things is through feedback and these feedback loops. So intentionally going and seeking out information about the individual's performance, your worker's performance, not just their client and how their client's doing, but actually that relationship and what's going on with the client and the therapist, and then the therapist in regards to the rest of the system that develops out of this. Um, lots of systems. I like to look at it as like 3D Venn diagrams, and we all just kind of sit in the middle of them. 
Um, so we use feedback to assist in making those kind of changes and setting goals um, because we are behavior analysts and we do know that this really is the, the, true, the tried and true method of making changes is to you look at it, you see where the problem is and we make changes and we you know, manipulate variables to make those things happen. So we go out, we contact relevant persons and team members, we ask specific questions. Um, it could just be, you know, how's the communication could be specific as that, or like Shanna said, it could be asking a more general question of like, well, how are things going? And just kind of seeing what comes out. Um, active listening is an essential part to our field that is definitely not touched on. And that's one of those non-technical skills that a lot of other fields look at and a lot of other fields incorporate. Um, so this is something that behavior analysts might need to jump on the bandwagon with to, to keep up with the rest of uh, the medical and mental health fields, because we talk about bedside manner and um, we may not be the best at, at doing those things. So. And then the last thing is to make sure that we are setting these goals and we're following up. So we do complete that loop. It's not just a cool, I got feedback and that's it. I have a nice piece of paper that I keep in my filing cabinet for seven years because that's like the magic number. Um, no, it really needs to have this impact at the end of like, okay, so I'm going to continue to do these things. I'm going to change my behavior in this way to see if it changes the outcome over here with my relationship and with the progress of my client and my individual. And with that being said, uh, we will make sure uh, Lee is going to send out the PowerPoint for everyone so that you can have access to these references. And as Shanna mentioned, these are just a few. Um, I could put all of Gold Diamond down there if you would like. Um, but it's excellent. It's a really, really good start. Um, if you want to look more on like the, the human performance system, Rumler, Brache, Breath Hour, uh, Thomas Gilbert are some other references you can go to. Um, but if, but Really, if you want to start looking at that kind of compassionate care, um, Taylor and LeBlanc's article, Compassionate Care, um, Stephen Hayes' understanding, I think, of like human empathy, I am becoming much more aware of. Anyway, so those are just some other references. Thank you guys so much. Um, I appreciate it. We appreciate it. Thanks for being our, our first subjects. <laughs> cool. So with that, um, I'll give you your final reinforcer, which is the word system. Thank you for listening to this adventure of the Atypical Behavior Analyst. Check out the website atypicalba.com for more episodes, references, and to purchase CEUs. To stay up to date, like and follow us on social media. Just search Atypical Behavior Analyst. If you like the show, please rate and leave us a review. And if you want to support the show but don't need CEUs, you can help by clicking the Buy Us a Coffee link in the show notes. So until next time, listeners, grab your towel, keep exploring, and we'll see you in the fringes.